It's Wednesday night, and I'm trying to help you to learn how to study the Bible. I've been studying the Bible for at least 63 years. That's when I got serious about it. About 1956, I was 17 years old. My father was a simple country Baptist preacher. He didn't know much about the Bible, and I would never see him study in depth. He'd read the same five or six or seven verses every time he got up and uh, tell stories about his life like so many preachers do. I heard a professor of theology from a seminary teach, and all of this information was coming out of his mouth. I said, I have to learn that. And that was 63 years ago. And I didn't just sit down and study the Bible and say, I got that, got that, got that. I would... I didn't know where to start. I didn't know how the Bible was laid out. And I'd force myself to read, 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 and then I'd quit. Then I'd read some more, and I'd quit. I'd read some more, and I'd quit. Sometimes I'd go for periods of time trying to make myself understand it. What really got hold of me was when I'd read something, and I would see it over here, and I'd see it again here, and I'd see it again here, and it'd be related to the same happening for some reason. I, back then I would study, and I kept running into the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and the beast. And this was always God's judgment against Israel for going after idolatry. And he says, I'll send the sword, the famine, the pestilence. And what I did, I took my concordance and got sword and famine and looked at that every time it was mentioned. Sometimes they just mentioned pestilence. Sometimes they mentioned these three together. And then God would turn around and say in Ezekiel, the 14th chapter, he said, I've got four sore judgments. Well, I had to look up sore. It didn't mean sore in our language. It was the word ra. Same word as evil. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. And he said, I got four of them. And he named sword, famine, pestilence. And this came in time, me looking at the Bible over and 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 over again. And then I saw the beast. Well, I didn't know what the beast was. So I read the 14th chapter. I read Daniel, the 7th chapter. And you can kind of see clearly what it is because when you get on into the end of the seventh chapter, it's talking about the first great king uh, of Greece that was overthrown by Persia. Well, the great king of Greece, the great king was Alexander the Great. So I'm watching how all these things fit together. And I I was always a math student. I loved mathematics in high school. Loved algebra and geometry and trig. And I began to see the mathematics of God. And I began to study it that way. I didn't know predestination at that point. I had a guy walk up to me and quote Romans 8, 29 in a Baptist church in Fort Worth. He heard me and some other young guys. It's, I was about 22, 21. And uh, he walked up and said, let me tell you guys something. He's about six, seven years older than me at that time. 
He said, let me tell you what the Bible says. It says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And I went, whoa, I've never heard that in my life. My father never read that. And I've been to Baptist churches and fellowship meetings, and I've never heard anybody say that. And I was shocked. And he walked away. And I said, wait a minute, you got to come back and explain some of that. He said, I have to go now. And that started me on this great search for the truth. But I began to realize all of my mathematics in school that I loved so much. I really loved algebra. I want the teacher to give me some algebra problems over the weekend, see if I could figure them out that she wasn't teaching. And I love that. But when he said these words to me, it was like I got hit in the head with a bat. I went, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And I chased him across the church, but he had to leave. I wish I knew his name. I don't even know the guy's name. I wish he knew that he he helped to get one man started in a TV ministry all over the country. And I began, I thought about that for two or three days. I said, if this is true, and it has to be, that God has to have done everything mathematically. Everything must add up. Has to. Otherwise, it's not God's work. So when I try to teach all these things mathematically, how they have to add up. Now, we've been, I've been trying to tell you how you can look at the words in the Bible. You have to go back to the original text. I've got just some pages out of my out of my concordance. You've got you've got I'll go through a bunch of these maybe in a week. But it's like the little words. You cannot do you cannot just throw away the little words. Little words sometimes show the entire picture of what the big word is about. It's like the word in, I-N. I-N. That's just our word. That's not the Greek word. It has nothing to do with the Greek word. There are three words that are translated with baptize that have been translated I in, and that doesn't mean anything. You have the word e i s or e i s. Ice. You can pronounce it ice if you want to. It says ice in the concordance. Ice. Then you have the word epi, and you have the word have the word epi, E-P-I, and you have the word E-N. And all these have been translated I-N. And when they're connected with the word baptized, not one of them means to move into and come out of. They don't mean that. Whether people like that or not, E-N, and when E-N Mr. Strong, Mr. Girdlestone will tell you in his McClinic and Strong, if you look at baptized, it will say the word E-N. 
when used with an infinitive, when used with an infinitive only means with or by. You get this out of Mounts's uh, Basics of Biblical Greek. It only means with or by. When you look at Acts 10:48, Peter is re- relaying his story of how that he went to the house of Cornelius and he's commanded, he says, I commanded him to be baptized. To be baptized. In the English language, an infinitive. This is the reason they. This is the reason they translated it this way. An infinitive is always preceded by to be. So it means to be. To be means to exist. To exist, baptized. And this is an infinitive in the Greek language. And it means to be baptized with. It says to be baptized in the name. But it means to be baptized with the name. With the name and name is the word onoma. Onoma means authority. When these people want to argue about the name of Christ, and they want to argue as whether his name is Yahweh, Y-E-H-W-A-H, or Jehovah, they're the same thing. That's what they don't know. Jehovah. A Y, when translated into English, is always translated J. It is the Yod, the smallest letter of the of the it's it's smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's a Yod or a Jot. And Y's and J's are the same thing. There are no vowels in the Hebrew language. A V is the same shape, just like a W other than vowel points. So, actually, J-H-V-H is the same thing as Y-H-W-H. Same thing. So, when somebody wants to fight over that, what you have to do is say, look, his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Which one of those names do you want? Or you want Yahweh? His name is written on his, when he comes back on a great white horse in the 19th chapter of Revelation, he will have upon his thigh his name, which is the word of God. So you're going to call his name Logos, word, or you're going to call it wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You're going to say his name is his authority. So baptized with the name means to be baptized with the authority and that is his word 
and the Holy Spirit is truth, is truth, and thy word, thy word is truth, and the Holy Spirit is his word. That's what the Bible says. So, if you're baptized with the name, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit or with truth, and that doesn't have anything to do with water. So when when Peter said, go and be baptized with the name of Christ, doesn't mean to dip people in water. Then when you get into this word ice or ease, that is the word that is used when Jesus gives the apostles Go into all the world and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name. That word in is the word ice. It means into, but it doesn't mean to come out of. That's what gets me. Where, how are these people going to get around this? And baptize does not mean to dip in water. Baptize comes from two words. In the Greek text, baptizo, even when you look that up in your Strong's Concordance, it does not mean to dip. Now, they'll translate it in some of the concordances. Don't use the abridged concordances. They've added to that. Get one of the older concordances, because they've added a lot of definitions to the. Mister Strong would be appalled if he knew they're going to do this. In the old Strongs, it says to cover. To cover doesn't mean to dip. If you cover something, if you cover it, you pull something over it when I say Mary I want that cover it's cold in here if she pulls it up she don't dip me into it to cover means it is the movement the movement of the fluid it's a movement of the fluid it means there has to come something from an outer source upon the subject it doesn't mean to dip anybody into anything. Then it'll tell you to see, to see, uh, Babto. When you look at Babto in your concordance, it will say, it says, to stain with a dye. That was a household term. That was a household term in the first century. Women used it to stain and dye clothes. This means the movement has to come from an outer source. Mr. Girdlestone said when the translators got to baptize, it stymied them. They didn't know what to do with it. It was a noun. It was an infinitive, a verbal noun a verbal noun is an infinitive. But the thing about infinitive, it, co- it comes from infinite. It means the condition of something after an action is taken upon it. So if it's infinite and you're baptized with the blood of Christ, that blood is from now on. 
and a blood baptism was a death or a martyrdom. What really gets me, I've never even heard anybody go to this extent of talking about baptized. But it goes on and on. And this word, epi, none of these means to dip into anything. The movement in an infinitive, what makes it the the condition. English people will tell you, when you study English books, that the condition of an infinitive is infinite. When you go out here and you look at the sky and you see the stars, you say, it's infinite out there. Space goes on forever and ever. I don't know if it does, but that's what people will think. Well, in the infinite condition, the infinite, when we say infinite, what we mean is not finite. Finite means it's got a limit on it. And from finite, we get the word finish. There's no finish to baptism. Once you're stained and died with the blood of Christ, and he's washed us from our sins in his own blood, once you're stained, it's permanent. He's washed us from our sins in his own blood. If there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism... It has to be blood. Paul said that in Ephesians 4. 4 and 4. There's one baptism. When he said that, this was about 30 years after the death of Jesus. And when he died on a cross, they nailed him to the cross. And Colossians 2.14 says... When he was nailed to the cross, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances, which was contrary to us, it was against us, took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. All the rituals were nailed to the cross with Christ. I do not believe in dipping anybody in water. I'm not going to do that. Baptized into Christ. What gets me, all the Baptists I was raised around, here's how they baptized. I baptize you in the name of Jesus. And they dip them downward. If you look up tomb in McClinic and Strong, it will tell you. It's amazing what they say. The Jews said putting people in the ground was alien to Jewish thought. They were going to take their place, their eternal place, in a tomb over here. And any self-respecting Jew wouldn't be put in the ground. Only the poverty-stricken were put in the ground. It's amazing that people don't even know that. If you're baptized, many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, but you haven't taken him off, put on in duo, means to sink into clothing. You don't take your clothes off once you put them on. Who are those that are raiding in white garments there in the seventh chapter of Revelation? They're gathered around the throne of God. The throne. I was going to talk to you about that tonight. They're gathered around the throne of God. Throne. i got to remember that. Who was that? They have made their robes white in the blood of Christ. That's astounding. And I've figured this out. 
this is mathematically true. That their robes are white in the blood of Christ. That's what the Bible says. I got to thinking about this and I remembered something about erythrocytes and leukocytes. Leukocytes in biology in Mr. Silverberg's class when I was in high school back in 1954. I remember the leukocytes are the white blood cells. What? And white and white blood cells they attack infection. They attack the germs. It's like the righteousness of the saints is white. They always wore white robes going into the high priest wear white robes and was going in to sprinkle the blood upon the Ark of the Covenant on the tenth day of the seventh month. And the white attacks sin, which is infection in our lives. The leukocytes attack the white. The urethrocytes, I think it's E-U-R-E-T-H-O, urethrocytes, they are the red blood cells. Red blood cells. And the white blood cells, just like the Bible says, our robes are made white in the blood of Christ. The red blood cells produce the white blood cells in your body. It's like the blood, the blood, the blood of Christ produces the white righteousness and it attacks sin. Just like the erythrocytes, the red blood cells produce the white and they attack infection. Red produces righteousness and attacks. This is not the only thing that God has done throughout the Bible. Everything has to add up. I just got to thinking one day, Nobody told me this. I didn't read it out of a book. Most of these mathematical things and biological things, I just, I've been analytical since I was a little bitty kid. I was always analyzing everything. What is that? Watching the TV in Fort Worth when I was a little kid and never seen a TV before. My dad went out and bought an 8-inch TV. It's about that big. And bought rabbit ears and, and, uh, we watched everything. Howdy Doody. Watched I Love Lucy, 1951. She was on the TV then. And uh, watched wrestling on Tuesday night. <laughs> I remember that. We watched the Midnight Mass, and the Pope would be up there. And I'm a little kid, and I'm analyzing. I'm not asking anybody. I'm just saying, there's the Pope. It's Christmas Eve. Is this Christ's Mass? Uh, I think St. Nicholas is another name for Santa Claus. By way of Holland, it took on Santa Claus and then became St. Nicholas over here. And I was thinking, he must have been a Roman Catholic something, I think. And I'm a little kid, 12 years old, analyzing. That's what I was always doing. And I couldn't, didn't know who to talk to about it. And then Mama would come to us. Daddy was just beginning to preach. 
And she'd say, kids that want me to Christmas, your daddy don't have any money. And I began to resent Christmas, not because so much it was pagan, because it oppressed the poor. I couldn't get over that. Even as a kid, I couldn't get over it. I thought the poor can't have anything to do with something that's righteous. And I began, that's when I discovered that Christmas was pagan. No one was telling me. Nobody talked to me about it. I just sat and analyzed it. Found out later I was right. I found out that Saint, that Saint Nicholas was a 4th century Roman Catholic bishop that gave gifts to children, and many of the historians think he was a pedophile because of that. Probably was. Now, there's another thing. I, I would think about this, and I didn't know what to do, so I looked it up myself in one of my dictionaries or something. I had studied how that I had studied how that uh, the children of Israel, or not children of Israel, Noah was in the ark with his three sons and their wives and his wife. Eight people in the ark. Eight people. And the ark was a great big casket looking thing. It actually looked like a chest. Ark means chest. And it was like, looked like this. It was just a big old long chest. It had a little opening up here. That's what it looked like. That's all it was. Didn't look like the big, uh, whatever you call the front end of it. <laughs> Didn't look like that. It looked like this. And the Lord said, pitch the ark within and without with pitch. Pitch with pitch. And I decided to look this up. I found out these were two different words, pitch. First word, pitch, was kafar. Kafar means to cover. To cover. And then the second word pitch had a little different spelling. This was a verb. The second word pitch was a noun. A noun is a person, place, or thing. The second word pitch is kofur. And that means to stain or to dye. Yes, pitch with pitch has the exact same meaning as baptizo with bapto. Exact same meaning. Not different. Not even just a play on the words has the exact same meaning. And they tell us that pitch, when you got to study in pitch, you can go into these encyclopedias, and some men think it came out of trees. Some say it came out of the ground in its natural state. But it was a type of asphalt that they caulked all the boats with. They caulked all of them. Caulking is what you put, where you put two boards together and you caulk it so it won't leak and it won't sink. And they say that this pitch was red-stained. It was a red-stained caulking. So what this was, it was the same thing as baptized. In fact, the Bible says, if you look at it real quick, 
over here in First Peter. And I'm showing you little words. Little words matter. I'm going to show you a little word that it doesn't say what it says in the English text. Just a little bitty tiny word. In First Peter, the First yeah, Peter, the third chapter, verse twenty. Speaking about the spirits in prison, don't have time to go there. Which sometime were disobedient, it's talking about the Gentiles, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved, it says by water. That word by is not the word by, it's the word dia. It actually means through water. The water was not baptism. The pitch of the ark was, by definition and by meaning. The like figure, just the way they were saved. The like figure, anti tupon means corresponding figure. It corresponds with the way Noah saved. Anti-tupon. Anti-tupon. Anti-type. Anti-type. The like figure, wherein to even, or the corresponding figure, Wherein to even baptism doth also now save us. The same way they were saved by the pitch of the ark, we're saved by the pitch of the blood of Christ. Baptizo with bapto. That's the true baptism. It's blood. It's not H2O. What really bothers me more than anything else about baptism and these people dipping in water what bothers me is John the Baptist was bab- was baptizing Jesus in Matthew. Matthew, the third chapter. Baptizing Jesus. And Jesus came to... Uh, John the Baptist said, I baptize with water. Now what he was doing with water baptism, he was... It was called proselyte. Baptism. I have never heard anyone even talk about the beliefs of the proselyte teaching of the Pharisees. Never heard anybody address it at all. But I have got books on it. I've got literature of the sages. A sage was a wise man, and they called the Pharisees sages. They were everything but sages. They were not wise men. There's two books out of the compendia, Literature of the Sages, Volume 1 and 2, tell you all about this. I've even got uh, the commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud in Hebraica by Lightfoot. 
He'll tell you about it. The proselyte baptism, when Jesus went to John, he said, let's fulfill all righteousness. What he was saying, let's fulfill the righteousness of the Pharisees. Washing in water was a proselyte process. A proselyte is a Gentile coming from some foreign nation, coming to Israel and wanting to become a member of this kingdom, which was called Kingdom of God. Our kingdom of heaven. Same thing. Where did the difference come? Well, the the Jews said about 200 B.C., we want to not bring reproach upon God's name, so we're going to change it to kingdom of heaven. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Luke says, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. They're the same thing. When you go into into the McLennan Strong, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, and it'll tell you they are synonymous, they're one and the same. So whenever Matthew addresses kingdom of heaven, that's why some say that he was trying to aim that gospel towards the Jewish believers. So, uh, but the Pharisees, when they were carried off into captivity over into Babylon, when the Jews were carried in back captivity to Babylon, they said, we have to have a law over here. And their law would be going back and taking the Jewish writings of the Torah, which was the first five books of the Bible, five books, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And they said they had 600 and 36 laws in that. And they had to translate that over to the Babylonian Aramaic. They spoke a dialect of the Aramaic language. Aramaic was a dialect of Hebrew, but it wasn't exactly Hebrew. So they said, we need to translate that over, and they call that translation Targum which means a translation. So they translated over these 636 laws. If I counted them, I'd probably count different than they counted. That's how the Jews were. So, when they got over to Babylon, there's 600, 630, 700 miles away from Israel. They're from when they're carried away in 586 B.C., they're carried from here, and they had to come up here and go this way. This was all Arabian desert. They couldn't be carried off like this. So they had to go north, and they had to be carried over here by Nebuchadnezzar on the Euphrates River, which is about where my finger is. That's where Babylon was. Same thing as Iraq. So... 
they carried them away and they said we have to translate this and they ended up with what they call the midrash which means a story story and this evolved into the evolved into the halakha and the Haggadah. The Haggadah was a written commentary, written that could not be spoken aloud. The Halakha was a verbal law that could not be written down. That's insane. That was where the Pharisees come up with this. And over here they had rabbis and they had a head rabbi. There was a lot of real famous rabbis. Uh, Simon the Great, uh, Maimonides. These were real famous guys that everybody knew about. Once in a while you hear them quoted among the Jews. The Halakha was passed down from one generation to the next. As the head rabbi would die, a new head rabbi would be elected by the people, kind of like the Pope is elected by the other priest, and a head, another head rabbi, and he would add his opinions to this targum on what these things meant. By the time you get to Jesus, they leave Babylon, they come over to Jerusalem, and they call themselves Pharisees, which means pure but they bring their halakha, and they said the halakha was stronger than the law given to Moses on Sinai. And they had all these different things in their halakha. Everything that Jesus attacked the Pharisees on. I don't understand why preachers haven't studied the laws of the Pharisees. Everything Jesus attacked them on was concerning their halakha. He just he started off in Matthew the fifth chapter beating them up. Every time he would say, "It hath been said," that is a direct. Illusion to halakha. That was a spoken law. When you look up the word tradition, the tradition of the Pharisees, when Jesus would say, you transgress the word of God by your traditions. The word of God has no effect by your traditions. It is the word paradosis. Paradosis. And when you look at the definition, it sounds, if you've just got a concordance, you won't have any idea what it's saying. And it's easy to think this is a good thing. It says the traditionary law of Moses. I have never heard a preacher even understand that. The traditionary law of Moses is the Pharisees' halakha, and it's a lie. Mm-hmm. 
It's just not that lie. When he spoke of the, when Paul, Paul said, I was a zealous of the traditions of my fathers, Paul was a Pharisee. He said, I was zealous of all these traditionary law of Moses. If you read that in your concordance, you're going to think that's a good thing. Unless you know what these laws of the Pharisees were. Boy, Jesus went after them with all fours. He would say, it hath been said. Then he would say, but I say. He was saying, I was on the mountain with Moses I was the God on the mountain with Moses. I didn't say any such thing. Boy, he attacked them in Matthew 5, and he went after them finally in Matthew 23. He said, you to make one proselyte, you Pharisees, and you make them twofold more the, high, the child of hell than yourselves. He called them children of hell. But I think we have a halakha in America, don't we? We have a verbal law and preachers will say, I think that means you're ignorant. You can't think something means you got to go to the definitions. I think that tongues are real. I think you can't think tongues are real unless you define the word tongue. You got two words for tongue. Glossa and dialectos. Everybody here that's been coming here knows what those are, don't you? Glossa means foreign language. Glossa. We get our word glossary from that. A glossary is a section of a book that's complex and it'll have a section back in the back and have all these complex words that are foreign to the average reader and you go to the glossary and find out what they mean it means foreign language so word glossa means means foreign language and then you have the word dialectos d-i-a-l-e-k-t-o-s You have this word right here. D-I-A-L-E-K-T-O-S. They had a different dialect. The word is dialect. Had a different dialect in every city state. You can get this out of any number of books. You can get it out of most Greek books. They'll tell you I had all these dialects of the Greek language. And if you lived in, in over here in what we call Iraq, but Babylon, all the Jews had three feasts they had to come back to due to Exodus, the 23rd chapter, some other verses. They had to come back to Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Ingathering. Passover was the, was the 14th day of the first month. Their first month of their year wasn't our first month. It was the month of Nisan. Nisan was March, April. Since theirs didn't land exactly on the same days our landed on, we say March, April. And in March, April, they had to come back the 14th day of that month, Nisan, and then they had to either stay over, they had to come back from all over the world. 
I love this. I got this out of the Compendia. Compendia is one of the best set of books. I mean, it's magnificent. Got this map out of the Compendia. These are the Jews coming back from all over the world after they had been scattered for 600 years. They're coming back every year to Passover, Pentecost, which is 50 days. Pent means five. 50 days after the Passover is Pentecost. And then they had to come back in the seventh month, which was Tishri. T-I-S-H-R-I. And that is September, October. T-I-S-H-R-I. And they had to come back. And they've been scattered. Northern Israel had been scattered 722 years at the Passover of Acts 2. Southern Judah had been scattered 586 years. Actually, add 30 years, 33 years to that. Over 600 years, both of them. So they've been living all over the world when Nebuchadnezzar carried them away. And they all are required to come back. This guy in Carthage, he's coming back. The arrows point here towards Jerusalem. From Greece, point towards Jerusalem. From Rome, point towards Jerusalem. And the Jews were scattered all over the world. In 600-year period, they're all speaking the dialect of the Greek language where they were born. That's what they're speaking. And they all come back, and they are in a state of confusion for hundreds of years. They don't even know what to do. They get there with all these other Jews from other foreign countries. They can't even communicate, can't even talk to each other because they don't all speak Hebrew. Hebrew had been more or less eulogized as by the Pharisees as a holy language, and they required it only in the temple or the synagogue. You had to speak that to communicate to the rabbis. And everybody was speaking a different dialect. So when they came back, they all spoke with other tongues, hetero, glossa. Other is hetero. We speak of heterosexuals as other sex. Hetero is a Greek word. means other. Glossa. If a guy's a heterosexual, he likes other sexual proclivities. Heteroglossa. Other foreign languages, as the Spirit gave them apo, P-H-T-H-E-G-G-O-M-A-I. Utterance means to speak so clearly as to be easily understood. Same word. And it's verse 14, Peter lift up his voice and said, he didn't say, Shandalamanda Kandai Shandalamashashiyamaka. What he said, ye men of Judea. We can understand what he said. That's what the Pharisees had. They had the same thing as the Baptists, the Pentecostals, and the Charismatics, and you name them. We've got a new Halakha in the world. And nobody cares what baptized means. People just don't care about these things. It's traditionary law. It's halakha. You can't get around 
They said, how here we ever man and our own dialect wherein we were born. It was a miracle of the ear. What a miracle of the tongue. And then when you get over to 1 Corinthians 14, it's talk. Dialect is not even in that chapter. It's only about Glossa because Paul said anybody coming through Corinth, Corinth was the center of the civilized world. They had sailors and salesmen, and you name it, they had it there. And he said, don't anybody come into the church speaking in a glossa, in a tongue. A man speaks in an unknown tongue. Unknown is not even in the text. If a man speaks in a foreign language in the church, he's edifying himself. You're never told to edify yourself, to edify the church. Ocodomeo is the word edify. Build up the church. Not yourself. But people don't care about that, do they? Not in this day and time. It's just, it's insane the halakha we have in America. Without definition, you can't understand. You know what we got with an English Bible? You know what this is, this King James Bible? It's a confusion of tongues because nobody knows what the translation is back to the Greek. You can't translate Greek into English properly. It can't even be done. One of my favorite things to tell people about is about when I say little words, the, what a word, the, in English, we have three articles, the, a, and an. An article is an adjective. Adjectives modify nouns and pronouns. They tell which, what kind of, and how many. The is a definite article. Talked about one particular, in a particular situation. You can't translate the word the into English. Why? Because of where it is in the sentence. You've got you got singular plural, masculine, feminine, neuter gender under the singular, masculine, feminine, neuter gender under the plural. Then you got the cases. That's where it is in the sentence. It's not hard. You got nominative, genitive. Dative and accusative case. Sometimes in the direct address you'll have a vocative case only in the singular. Only in the singular. Nominative case is the predicate nominative or the subject. Predicate nominative is the Jim is the pastor. Predicate is the same thing in the predicate that equals the subject. So you've always got to have a being verb there. Jim is the pastor. This is the predicate nominative. Same thing in a predicate that equals to the subject. And then genitive case, when you get into the case of the genitive with baptism, it nails down that baptism can't be water. No possible way. Because 
when you see baptism of repentance, when you look up repentance, it is genitive case. Genitive means possessive. That means true baptism is owned by repentance. It cannot be water. It's not possible. Due to being genitive case. Can you see that? There's no way it can be water. Because true baptism is possessed and owned by repentance. Repentance, metanoia, means to be turned and think differently. Metanoia. To be turned and think differently and be ashamed of your sin. You can be dipped in water and not be ashamed. And it means to be instructed. You can be dipped in water and not be instructed. It means willing to take the blame. It don't mean when you're dipped in water you're willing to be blamed for your sin. True baptism has to do with being owned. If I'm, if Jim Brown is of Hendersonville, somehow Hendersonville possesses me. I preach here every week. I'm owned by Hendersonville in a respect. It's You have the genitive case. The fact you've got the cases, that's where it is in the sentence or some character in the sentence. So you got... You actually have got, with thee, you don't have a vocative case with thee. You have a vocative case with agathos, A-G-A-T-H-O-S. That is the word good in Romans 8 and 28. And we know that all things work together for agathos, for good, for beneficial to them that love God to them who are the called according to his purpose. Only those that agape God, and agape is walking after the commandments of God, Second John 6, this is agape, that we walk after his commandments. Agape was a relationship that fathers had for their sons, that kings had for their subjects. If he loves, if we love him, he's written upon fleshy tables of our hearts, and everything we're going through works for good. I can't help but say this is talking about the groaning in the previous church, previous verses. It's talking about groan. It's talking about groaning. We groaneth. It says the whole creation groaneth. The creation is not the world. The creation is us. We're new creatures. Katesis. K-T-S-I-S. That's the word creature. It's talking about the creature was made subject to vanity, but not willingly, but by reason of him who subjected the same creature, which was Adam, in hope. It wasn't Adam's will that he was made subject of vanity. It was God's will. God put sin nature in him. He didn't say, Adam, thou shalt not eat of that tree. Because if you do, he didn't say if you do. He said the day you eat, you will die. You will eat. You're made of corruption. 
Then you got the dative case, and you got the accusative case. The dative case is the indirect object, indirect object. And the accusative case is the direct object. That's not hard. If you learn direct object, Jim threw the ball. Through is an action verb, so all direct objects and indirect objects have to have an action verb. Jim threw the ball. Ball receives the action of the verb. Jim is the subject. He threw the ball. So this, the ball is the direct object. Jim threw John the ball. He didn't throw John. He threw the ball to John. So John is the indirect object. So just to spell the, you've got 24 ways to spell it. How are you going to translate that into Greek? That can't be done. Period. And when Jesus said, I am the way, he used the word hey, the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. And he told him, the way you know. Tain, tay, ta, no. Anything that ends with an ada is feminine gender. And it's feminine. What do you mean? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and the way you know. He's talking to the apostles in John 14. And that's the nucleus of the church, the wife, the bride of Christ. He said, you ought to know it in your heart. I am the way that's in you, my church, my wife, my bride. How are you going to translate that without explaining it after the word the? You can't. We've got a halakha here called the English Bible because we don't know what words mean. Do I, did I trust the translators? Half of them were Roman Catholic. And I'm going to trust them? No. I've got to go in and look at these. There's a lot of bad translations in the King James Bible. I use the King James because it comes from what I believe is the correct text, which is the interlinear Bible. This is it right here. Here's an interlinear. And I don't trust the English in this. It's got the Greek on the top line and the English right under it. Don't even trust the English of the interlinear. I go and find out whether this is in the nominative case. I find out the spelling. When John 3.16, For God so loved the world, world is the word K-O-S-M-O-N. Cosmon. If you look it up in the in the concordance, it'll say K-O-S-M-O-S. Are they the same word? Yes. God loved, God loved, verb, subject, world. World is the accusative case, so it belongs here. And the way it is spelled is K-O-S. An S, a small s, in the middle of a word is an oval with a flag on top. K-O-S, 
M looks like an upside down H O S and S on the end of the word looks like R S it's actually cosmon up here in the nominative case it's cosmos K-O-S-M-O-S I'll just spell it out there it's cosmos it's cosmon in the accusative can you actually translate that correctly no and any Greek scholar knows that. It just, so how are you going to do it? Look it up. I try to teach everybody here how to look things up, how to find out what. You're going to get the spelling. All Mr. Strong is going to give you is nominative, masculine, singular. That's all you'll get from him. Because if you had a concordance that had all of these parts of speech, You'd have to get a trailer to carry your concordance in. So what you got out there behind your car? That's my concordance and my trailer. <laughs> so we got these books. You learn, get your internet in your Bible, look how the word is spelled, and get you a an analytical lexicon. You get one by mouths or any number of guys, they're all the same. And it'll give you the part of speech. When you look the word it how it's spelled there. But you know why we've got this halakha on America? Because they've tried to make the Bible so simple and don't need to teach anybody anything. Now we are got people that believe that faith can heal. Faith don't heal nobody, nothing. What really gets me Every time the Bible says, Thy faith has made thee whole. Every time the word whole is the word so-and-so. It means, I always pronounce the Z, D-Z, that's the way it's pronounced. So-and-so, saved. Faith saves, it doesn't heal. The woman that came to Jesus with the issue of blood, Jesus said, Thy faith has made thee whole, now go and be whole of thy plague. Same word in the English, but the second word whole is hugius, H-U-G-I-E-S. We get our word hygiene from that. Now, since I'm the living God and you can't come in contact with me without me being healing you, now go and be physically cleansed of your plague, but your faith didn't heal you physically. Your faith saved you. But... Well, just says whole, so we'll just take whole. What does it mean? You know how frustrated I get at this stuff. These guys don't even care. And you Greek scholars out there, you know what I'm saying is true. If you're a Greek teacher, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Just trying to teach people words and not telling them, show them how they're wrong. Everything that these charismatics and Baptists are saying in America. Is the same thing that the Pharisees had when they had a halakha. Same thing. You, you can get the literature of the sages on the book one, and it'll say halakha, uh, verbal law. It'll have all these words on it. Uh, Tosefta, which was an addition to the halakha. And that was the Pharisees. They said in their halakha, one of my favorite things to tell on them, they said 
that man was created on the sixth day, God was looking ahead and he saw the Sabbath day he was going to have to rest. So he created man on the sixth day in order to put him in subjection to the Sabbath, which was their most holy thing. And when Jesus said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, they were going, we'll kill you for that. He was contradicting their halakha. Every, I did a series on the halakha. Mary said, everybody needs to hear this before they need to hear anything. Everything he said to them was to hammer them about their halakha. And they said, here's what they said. They said, if a man would be dipped in water, would be circumcised, washed in water, and offered two turtle doves at the temple... Well, Jesus' mother had offered two turtle doves. That was in the law, and it had not been nailed to the cross yet. He had been circumcised on the eighth day. When he went to John the Baptist, he said, They have in their halakha that if I will be washed in water, that's everything according to their proselyte process, that they will have to listen to me. Wash me in water and fulfill their law, their, their righteousness. That's why what that John the Baptist said, Therefore am I come washing in water, that Christ might be made manifest to Israel. He wasn't washed in water, so we can follow that. That was a proselyte process. They kept calling him a Samaritan. Why would he be dipped anyway? Was he going to save him? Yeah. It's crazy. It is crazy. He was raised in Zebulon. That's where Nazareth is. Nazareth... When you said Nazareth, it was not a Nazarene. You weren't saying something uh, complimentary. Nazareth was considered the septic tank of the world in the first century. That's why Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, whichever we want to call him, that's why he said, when Andrew said, we found the Messiah, and he said, where is he from? He said, Nazareth. He said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Are you kidding? They knew he was raised in Nazareth, but they didn't know he was born in Judah, in Bethlehem. They didn't know that. So he said, if I'll be washed in water, according to their halakha, they have to listen to me according to their law. And every time he said something to them, Every time it was about their halakha. And that's what I preach against the halakha of America. Accept Christ is halakha. You can't accept Christ. Not when you're dead in sin. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolish to him. Natural sukikos means the man of the senses, the sensual man. This man, this fleshly man, cannot receive decomai. Decomai, E-C-H-O-M-A-I. Comes from the word dec, which is the word ten in the Greek. A decade is ten years. Decalogue is the Ten Commandments. It means to reach out the ten fingers and accept an offer that's been given. 1 Corinthians 2.14 say men who are dead and in sin cannot accept Christ or anything else that's spiritual. When you're dead, you're dead. How does salvation come? Believe. 
comes by belief. But God had to choose you before the foundation of the world and put faith in your heart and cause you to believe. You can't... When people say, what can I do to be saved? I say nothing. But me saying nothing ain't going to keep you from believing. But you can't do nothing. If God doesn't put the truth in your heart, you'll never believe. Believe is the verb. Faith is the noun. Faith is the gift of God. That word gift is the word doron. It means to be merciful to. God has to put it in you. You don't have anything there to let it come in. What do you do to be saved? Just live your life, and if somebody preaches to you, it'll cut into your heart and make you alive. Oh, you will call upon God, but not till you believe. You will accept the things that he said, but that comes after belief. comes over the years. You accept the things of God only after you're born again. You cannot say, Daddy, hold my hand till you're born. You can't say, Lord, save me until you're born. When Peter said, Lord, save me, or I perish, he's out there on the sea trying to walk on water. He was already a believer. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved is the Baptist's favorite verse in America. But how shall, But the next verse says, how shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? You can't start praying to a God you don't believe in. I'm not going to pray to Zeus any moment up here. Why? I don't believe he's there. <laughs> don't believe in Zeus or Jupiter or Venus or Hercules or Baal or the grove. Don't believe in them. Once you believe, you'll start calling on God. But you can't conjure up the belief in your heart. That's predestination. There's none that seeketh after God. Now, I've got to give you one other word on this baptism thing. Over in Acts 2, verse 38. These little words matter. This is Acts 2, 38. They said, Peter preached to the people there at Pentecost, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? They were cut to the heart. And Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. He said, be baptized in the name of Jesus, in the name. That word in doesn't mean to be dipped into anything, come out of it. The word is epi. This is a prefix. All three of these are words that's on the front end of words. They're prefixes. As well as being separate words. Epi means to cover. Wait a minute. That's what Mr. Strong says. This word baptizo means. It means to cover. Epi means to, you'll find it has many meanings, over, upon, or cover. Cover doesn't mean to dip into. He said be baptized, covering. It means to superimpose. 
superimpose something means to cover with. It means to cover with the name. There we are back to the name. Onoma. With cover with the authority of God. His authority is his word, is his spirit. I don't know why I'm the only guy to find these things, but I've been looking these words up for decades, studying the detail on them. So Peter's not saying, be baptized in water in the name. What gets me? The Pharisees hated Jesus. Fifty days before this, they had killed him. Now, do you think the Pharisees in Jerusalem, there were... Some believe there were, the compendious says they believe there are probably at least 12 million Jews there. Where were they staying? They had to open the doors of their houses at all these festivals. They had to, they didn't shut the doors till the, till the houses were full and they shut them. That was saying we have no more vacancies. And they let all the people come from around the world. And you could go outside the town and it'd be, Thousands and thousands of tents out there where they were encamping. And none of them could understand each other. What did they do? Well, about 200 years B.C., according to the Compendia, they started building synagogues. They would build a Philippian synagogue over there, Philippi up here, and a Thessalonian synagogue. Maybe the Thessalonians were next door to Philippi, Maybe they could understand their dialect. And they started building a, a Babylonian synagogue, an Ethiopian synagogue, an Egyptian synagogue, a Corinthian synagogue, a Carthage synagogue, a Roman synagogue. So when they came there, they could go to their various synagogues and they could understand each other. So they could fellowship with people from their country. If you went out on the road, out on the road coming from Egypt, and you were, it's the time of one of these festivals, you'd go out on, outside on the road and watch these people. There would be hundreds of thousands of them just packed along the road, coming from all over the world. And that's why they couldn't understand each other's dialects and glossa. And God gave them a miracle of the ear there at Pentecost. How was this pouring out of his spirit on all flesh? Well, because they were all going to go home after these festivals, take this message that they heard Peter and the apostles say in their dialect of the Koine and take it back to the Gentiles or the all flesh, the red, yellow, white, black, and brown flesh of the world. That's what it's about. You know how long I've been wrestling with this? I used to be a gospel singer in my 20s. I'm 80 now. I've been in my 20s. I sang with the Blackwoods. That was a, one of the most famous groups in the country probably the most famous gospel singing group in the 50s and 60s and I got in that and it was supported by Pentecostals and I went into churches all over America and watched this jibber jabbering going on and thinking what have I got into it was just like insanity 
So I started thinking about that when I was in my 20s. And I started studying, paying attention, looking at it. Then I got to studying the Greek, looking up the words. And I said, this is not what the Bible's talking about. That is halakha. It's what it is. Their tongues, their faith healing. What gets me, this really boggles my mind. It, you, you can be a Pentecostal and ask them this, and they don't know what to say. Why is it Pentecostals and Charismatics can't be healed when they're 85 or 90? They all start dying of some kind of disease. Paul Crouch, who started TBN, died of congestive heart failure he had had for 10 years. Why didn't he call Benny Hinn and tell him to come heal him? Huh? Jan Crouch, his purple-haired wife, how ridiculous, she died of a stroke and a heart attack. Why? And that goofball down in Houston, uh, what's his name, said she lost her faith. You idiot, you're going to get old too and die. And Kenneth Hagen died of a heart attack. He saw that big tall Jesus, it killed him. Huh? He saw the big 800 foot Jesus. 900 foot. Well, that was Oil Roberts. Oil Roberts died of pneumonia, the world's most famous faith healer. Why did they die of a disease? Because their bodies wear out when you get 85 and 90. Why is that they can't be healed? Because they never were healed. They didn't read Ecclesiastes. <laughs> If you ever read Ecclesiastes, they would know it was all vanity and vexation of spirit. And the same thing that happens to dogs happens to men. They all die. It's just, we're living in a halakal world. Everything that's going on in the churches is halakal. It's opinions. One of my favorite halakals, and you won't know this unless you read these books that'll tell you what the laws of the Pharisees were. The Pharisees said, and they took this from they took this from what oh, if I forgot to tell you about the ark. This is something I just thought about one day. It was red plus Plus yellow, the color of fire all through the Bible is yellow. And it was a pitch with pitch with red, red stained dye. And all the way through the Bible, a trial or fire, trial is the color of yellow, fiery trials. And red and yellow, and I got to looking at this, and I looked up, it comes out orange, doesn't it? I took my, I took my uh, Webster's Dictionary, this is how simple it was, and looked up orange. And it tells you in Webster's Dictionary, orange is the Latin word, A-R-U. W M Arum means gold.
That's what orange means. Gold. The trying of your faith. Was that a trial they were in? The ark for 370 days. I thought the I thought it rained 40 days and 40 nights. It did. But they were in the ark 370 days. All they had was one opening. Had to smell all that urine. All of that animal poop. I mean for 370 days. Was that a trial? They couldn't bathe? I guess it was. It was a fiery trial. And that was like gold in their life. And that's what our trials are about. How much time do I have, Mike? Twelve. Twelve minutes. I didn't even, I kind of went a direction I didn't mean to go. Uh, I started to tell you something. I forgot what it was and I had to stop. And I just, sometimes all you have to do is look these words up and it'll tell you what they mean. All right. Now, when you're talking about little words, there's a word chi. Chi. And you have to go according to the context. If there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Jesus in John 3 told Nicodemus, said, Nicodemus says, we know that you're a man come from God. And he used the word, no. He used the word Ido. You also have the word no. Gnosko. It means to know by learning. This word here means to know by seeing. By being an eye witness. The difference in the two is like the wreck occurs down here on Gallatin Road. Somebody said, I was there and I saw it happen and I can tell you what happened. You're learning it from a witness. From a witness. But if you're standing there watching it happen, you are the witness and you can say, I saw this. Ido is a lot stronger than gnosko. When the Bible says, for whom he did foreknow, prognosko means to know intimately beforehand. He's going to say those on his left hand, depart from me, I never gnosko you. When people say he foreknew everybody, no he didn't. Whom he predestined, he also called, justified, and glorified. Called, justified, and glorified in that, that verse 30 of Romans 8. Predestined, whom he did predestinate, them he so called. Whom he called, them he justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Predestined, called, justified, and glorified are all aorist indicative verbs. That's past tense. That means they were predestined, called, justified, and glorified before the foundation of the world. That's what it means. But this word know, when Nicodemus said, we know that you're a teacher from God because no man can do these miracles. He said, we can see that. We recognize that. And then Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus, when he said see, he used the same word. 
I don't know why they translated it, see and know. They're the same word. Nicodemus said, we know that you're come from God because you can do these miracles as you were from him. Jesus said, except a man be born again, he cannot see this. If you really see this, Nicodemus, you're already born again. And then Jesus said, except a man be born of water, Kai. The English version says and, but it also can be even. And in this case, it has to be even because there's one baptism. Exactly, man be born of water, even the Spirit. And what is living water? It is the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the woman at the well, I'll give you living water and you'll never thirst again. So when he's talking about Kai, it should be translated even the Spirit. The Spirit is truth. It is the living water. And Jesus said, our bodies are washed with pure water. They kept their water in cisterns. They were covered with flies. There was no fresh water unless they went way down deep in the ground. And Jacob's well, where Jesus met the woman at the well in John 4, that was a real deep well. And he said, if you'll ask me, I'll give you living water. They said all water that flowed under these underground rivers and coming out of a mountain, that was living water and it was pure. And he said, unless a man, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you're born of this water. He's talking about the Holy Spirit when he's talking to Nicodemus. He's not talking about the water birth coming out of the womb. Not it. He says, even the Spirit. And he says, he called it pure water in Hebrews, the 10th chapter. Our bodies are washed with pure water living water with the Holy Spirit so that little word Kai means a lot could be and but it's not in this case because there's one baptism it's blood y'all know how with all this stuff going on in my head I have been defining words for decade after decade after decade and I realize how ignorant preachers are I can't hardly stand to listen to one of them and watch one of them when one of them comes on I say turn that off I can't handle any of them especially the doctors of theology they're PhDs FUD they're Elmer FUD preachers is what they are and I have no no use for a man that won't he has no business standing up giving a halakha out that he thinks if I said I think I might as well use a cuss word you'll never hear me say I think that means that's what you get in a Baptist Sunday school class what do you think that means and what does that mean to you it means the same thing to everybody and the part about baptism that gets me John said, I baptized with water. There comes one after me, he'll baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. Holy Ghost and fire was a stoic term. 
sometimes it's spelled S-T-O-I-C, and the Greek and the English New Testament, Stoic. It was a Stoic term. A man named Zeno started Stoicism uh, before the third, before the beginning of the third century BC, somewhere around three twenty. Zeno started Stoicism. He said all of the universe that we go outside and look at, he said it was an orderly arrangement, and he called it a cosmos. That's the word John three sixteen for world. He came up with that. And he's what gave the cosmos life. He said it was a living, breathing entity, like I'm a breathing entity. And he said what gave this cosmos life, it would be like our solar system would be, uh, would be a uh, atom or be a molecule in his fingernail. He said what gave this this system life was Numa which is the word spirit and pur. Pur is the word fire. Mr. Zeno said that 300 years before John the Baptist stood on the river banks of the Jordan River. He said, he'll baptize you with, when they heard Holy Ghost and fire, they knew that was an old idiom that meant life. Now here's what gets me. Why would Jesus go into his first ministry in Matthew 5, go through all of this, and then after he's resurrected from the dead, go to his apostles in northern Israel and say, Go into all the world, teach all nations, baptizing them with water in John's proselyte baptism. You know that baptism he spoke about, about mine, Holy Ghost and fire? Forget that one. You think Jesus would say that? If he meant water, that's what he's saying. He was saying, baptize, go and cover them with the blood of Christ. A blood baptism was a death, a martyrdom. It was death to self. What do you think he meant when he said to James and John and Mark 10, can you be baptized with a baptism I'm baptized with? Tomorrow I'm going to die on the cross. That's what he's talking about. Baptism bothered me ever since I was a kid. Every time my father would say, if you don't know tonight, this may be your last chance. I'd take off down the aisle again. And he dipped me about seven or eight times. Finally, he just got tired of seeing me come. If you don't know, I didn't know. That's another word. You know what's wrong with you. We know what's wrong with you. <laughs> You're waterlogged. <laughs> yeah, I knew all the tadpoles in Texas by their first name. <laughs> I feel what you said. <laughs> Am I out of time, Mike? One minute. One minute. I was. I, do I believe Jesus said that? No, I don't believe he said that because he said in. You move into Christ and you don't come out. Ice. Move into when the Bible says enter ye in at the straight gate enter is the word e-circomai e-i-s-e-r-c-h-o-m-a-i enter ice or God 
Ergon is the word toil. Labor entering in. Work the good works of faith. That's our labor. I am sick of the preachers and their halakha. All of them. Especially these big important guys. You listen to them on the radio. I got sick of Jerry Falwell long before. My father was an independent Baptist. I knew exactly what Jerry Falwell believed. He was an independent Baptist. Well, we're done for now. I'm going to come back Sunday and say some more profound things. I hope they're profound. To me, definition is profundity at the height of it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for truth. God, I I don't even... I know you've got me here doing this. Sometimes it's so frustrating. I'm not going to quit. I'm tired, but I'm not tired of the Word. I want somehow to be able to tell the world about these truths, and yet they don't want it. Deal with our hearts. Crush us under your hand. And let us be found faithful, not successful, not going out and doing great things. You're not wanting great. You just want us to be faithful. Thankful for truth. Fight our battles for us. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Preachers are liars. That's what they are. And some people will say, maybe they don't know it. That's kind of like saying, this algebra teacher doesn't know anything about algebra, and she's teaching in school, has been doing that for years. If she don't know algebra, get out of, get out of the, behind the pulpit. Don't teach when you don't know it. You don't have any business doing that, do you? That's like a biology or something. You don't know nothing about it. <laughs>